So we're in 1 John. If you turn to the book of 1 John, we're in chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, there are, should be one on your row that you can grab and use. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take it home. That's our gift to you. 1 John 5. And we're looking at verses 6 through 12. I'm going to jump in here very quickly, but I just wanted to say we're getting close to the end. Only three more sermons in 1 John, and then we're, we're done. And then we're going to jump over to 2nd and 3rd John. Um, so we've moved along fairly quickly, and uh, yeah, we're, at the, we're, at, we're nearing the end. So um, great job hanging in there with me as we uncover the riches of John's letter. And, um, and there are, there's a lot packed into five chapters of 1 John. Um, so if you are able, please stand as we read God's word. This is from verse 6 to verse 12 of chapter 5, 1 John. This is God's word. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Amen. You may be seated. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an interesting study done uh, about 2008, or about over 10 years ago, um, by a man named Christian Smith. He did a study, and he, with some other researches, uh, researchers at the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, took a look at the religious beliefs of youth, especially so young people in our, in our country, and so young Christians. Um, actually, it was more than just Christian. It was anybody, right? Just young teenagers. What is your view of God? What is your view of religion and, uh, and Christianity? And uh, Albert Moeller, writing about this, said that they found that the faith held and described by most adolescents, so those who describe themselves as Christians, came down to something that researchers identified with three words. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. That's how they describe the religion of youth in America today. Christian, Christianity in America today. And it's not just for youth. I think you can really extrapolate this and, and think about this as the, the general population. How we view the Christian faith. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'm going to de- define what those words mean. But he can, he, um, they, the researchers um, really defined it in five different ways, and, and this is what it is, that this moralistic, therapeutic deism consists of these beliefs. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the worlds and watches over human life 
on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So you've got a major issue, that's when you call upon God. Otherwise, you don't really think about Him. Number five, lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. Right? Good people go to heaven when they die. So moralistic, what does it mean when, when, it says, when we say the word moralistic, what does that mean? Well, what that means is it teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. That means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible, at work on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. In a very real sense, Moller writes, that appears to be true of the faith commitment insofar as this can be described as a faith commitment held by a large percentage of Americans. These individuals, whatever their age, believe that religion should be centered on being nice, a posture that many believe is directly violated by assertions of strong theological conviction. So if you're strongly convinced of doctrine, that is the opposite of being nice. What about therapeutic? What do we mean by therapeutic? Or what do the researchers mean? It means... As the researchers explained, this is not a religion of repentance from sin of, or keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of sovereign divinity or steadfastly saying one's prayers or faithfully observing holy days, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice, etc. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems and getting along amiably with other people. That's the therapeutic side of this equation. What about deism? What do we mean by deism? As Smith explains, this amorphous faith is about belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, who created the world, who defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in your life, especially affairs in which one would prefer he not be involved in. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. Keeps a safe distance. So, that's where we are, right, in this country. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's, that's the way our young people are growing up and understanding what Christianity is all about. And that is far from what biblical Christianity is about. And as we've been reading in 1 John, 1 John is mainly about not our subjective experience or our feelings or being nice or, or moralism or therapeutic. It's about the objective, objective, Saving work and love of God outside of ourselves, what He has done. Not what goes in here or what happens in our head. Not about our love, not about how are we, are we doing or, or our love to God. And remember in 1 John, in the first verses, it's all about John's testimony of what he saw in Jesus, who he physically spent time with, touched, 
and walked with. That's the witness he's giving us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the early 1900s, and I would recommend you read anything by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's great. He says this, What matters is God's love to us, not our love to God. Our love is weak and frail and fallible. It wanes and waxes. It comes and goes. Thank God my salvation does not depend on me, but on God's love to me. Not upon my frail grasp of him, but upon his strong grasp of me. Brothers and sisters, that is what I have been gleaning from this, this letter, First John, that, that it's about God's love to me. Does our love matter? Yes. But it doesn't matter more than his love to us in the gospel and what Christ has done. And that is where he is again drawing our attention in the verses of 6 through 12 in this chapter. So what John is exhorting us to do as believers is three things. And it's in your outline in the bulletin. That we're to receive three things. First is the work of Christ. Second is the witness of the Holy Spirit. And third is the wonder, the wonder of eternal life. Work of Christ, the witness of the Holy Spirit, and the wonder of eternal life. Well, first let's look at the work of Christ. And here we're looking specifically at verses 6 through 8. Let me read it to you again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. So you're probably wondering, where am I getting work of Christ from water and blood? So almost every commentary I looked at this week and study resource I looked at in preparation for this passage and preaching it said the same thing. This is a difficult text to interpret. Every single commentary said that. That this is probably in the top five or top ten most difficult passages in all the Bible. What is he talking about? Water and blood. And just so you know, just as an aside, as your pastor, I'm always going to shoot straight with you. I'm always going to be honest with you. I won't back down from the clear passages of Scripture, and I'll preach those, and I'll do it fervently, but I'll also not avoid the difficult passages of Scripture either. And that's one of the reasons we preach the way we do, exegetically through Scripture, because we don't want to skip anything that's hard. You can skip it in your quiet time, but you can't skip it when you're here. This is a difficult passage. I'll just say that up front. Difficult. And so what do you do when you come to a difficult passage of Scripture? What do you do when you're reading the Bible for yourself? How do you interpret it? I'm going to share with you an interpretive principle that I want you to put in your your toolkit as you're studying your Bible. And that is the idea of you interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's what I was doing this week. You interpret the unclear passages with the more clear passages, right? And those inform those unclear passages. When you arrive at a difficult passage that is unclear and confusing, you let the more clear passages that reference those ideas, in a sense, explain it. And actually, our Westminster Confession of Faith gets right to this point in chapter 1 of our confession. It says, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, 
it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Right, so you, just, you don't just spin your wheels trying to figure out what, what is he talking about, about word and, or water and blood. No, you go to other places that, that speak more clearly about that. So what does John mean by saying that Jesus came by the water and the blood? Good question. It's sort of like he's speaking in code, cryptically, and, and, and just assuming that we should know what he's talking about, water and blood, that Jesus came in this way. But he doesn't elaborate. Right? He doesn't elaborate. He just simply states it, that Jesus came by water and blood. Well, many theologians, not surprisingly, have debated what John's talking about here, and some have argued that John is simply saying that Jesus was born like any human. Water and blood, amniotic fluid and blood. He's, just, he's a true human. Some have argued that the water and the blood point, both point to the crucifixion of Christ. On the cross, do you guys remember when he was punctured on his side and what came out? Blood and water flowed from his side. Again, others take a different view, like John Calvin and Luther argue that the water and blood point to baptism and the Lord's Supper. I'm going to differ from every one of those views and say that they, they don't really grab the context of what John is talking. He hasn't been developing theology about the Lord's Supper in this letter, so I don't think we should go there. He's not necessarily talking, I don't, I don't believe he's talking just about the crucifixion. And so we're going to talk about what we thought, the most difficult aspect of this is water. What is he talking about with the water? So I want to take you through some places in Scripture that mention water. Where do we first hear about water in the, in the whole Bible? Genesis 1, that's right, whoever said that. Genesis 1, the Spirit of God. This is the very beginning of creation. right? First few verses of our Bible. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The waters, this mysterious water. Before creation, before the world is formed, we have these waters and the Spirit together in creation. As He's molding and creating for the very first time the universe. There you have it, spirit, water. Again, we we read of this creation or recreation idea in John chapter 3 that I read last week. When when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and spirit exist not only in creation, but in recreation, being born again. We also read about this in chapter 4 of John, where uh, Jesus meets the woman at the well. What is she doing? She is at the well getting water. And how does he explain salvation to her? That it's living water. That I have water uh, that, that you'll never go thirsty again once you drink this water. Again, the idea of being born again, recreated, this water. So water in the Bible speaks to creation and recreation. It also speaks to Deliverance and being saved. What are the two most watery examples of the Old Testament that you could think of in the early chapters of Genesis? Right? Noah, the flood. Right? There's a lot of water involved in that event. Another one is the Red Sea event. When they pass through the Red Sea, and the water is parted. And in two places in the New Testament, in 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians, Peter talks about 
this water event with Noah and the flood as a type of baptism. He says in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is that the flood event was a type of baptism, a type of deliverance, a type of saving event for God's people. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, talks about the parting of the Red Sea as a, part, as a type of baptism as well. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So, so Paul is saying that the Red Sea crossing was a type of baptism as well. But you didn't know baptism existed in the Old Testament, did you? Baptism was this type of deliverance that they went through. A saving event. And so as we get to the New Testament and see baptism, those Old Testament pictures should inform how we think about baptism in the New. And that Jesus came by water. So what I'm telling you that means is that he was, that he was brought through by baptism. That his ministry began through baptism, being baptized by John the Baptist. If you remember in Matthew chapter 3, that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's baptism was, he called it a baptism of repentance. And so that might be confusing to us that Jesus would undergo a baptism of repentance as a sinless and perfect, perfect person. Why would he do that? Well, he says in Matthew 3.15 that he did it to fulfill all righteousness that Jesus underwent all the obligations of the law for us to be perfect for us. And so that's why he was baptized. And not only was Jesus baptized, he had the ministry of baptism too, that he, just, he baptized through his disciples. It says in John 4, 1 and 2, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then in parentheses John writes, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So we see that Jesus came, came by way of baptism into his ministry and that he also baptized through his disciples. And so what that points to, what baptism points to, is a need for cleansing, right? a need for washing away of our sin. And that is the first work that Jesus provides us in the gospel, and that he provides a way for us to be clean, to be sinless, and this is what theologians call the active obedience of Jesus, that he was actively, perfectly obedient on our behalf in his entire life lived, that he fulfilled the law perfectly. There's a, a famous statement attributed often to Corey Tenboom. She says, In the gospel, God takes our sins and drops them into the deepest part of the ocean, and over that very spot, he places a sign, No fishing here. No fishing here. He places our sins in the deepest part of the ocean that no one can pull out ever again. They're gone forever. Friends, in the gospel, through the work of Christ, we are cleansed from our sins, all of our sins, as we look to Jesus in faith. That stain of sin 
is washed away. And so water, the reason John mentions water is it points us to that first great truth of the gospel, that all your sins have been washed away. So think about that. Think about, if you're, if you're not a believer today, think about all of the most horrible things you've done. The things you've done which you are most sad about and regretful and you wish you could undo. And it's like a stain on your conscience and on your memory and you can't get rid of it. If you trust in Christ, all of it's forgiven. All of it is washed away because he was perfect for you if you believe in him. And believer, we struggle with that as well. Do, do we not continually think about the things we've done? You know, if someone to create a list of every sin you've ever committed and put it on a PowerPoint slide and just clipped, you know, through them all, how ashamed would we feel? And that is why the gospel is so, such good news. that You've been forgiven. Every single one of those sins has been washed away. Everything you've ever done, that is good news. And so that's what the water points us to. The waters of baptism and Jesus coming into his ministry and beginning his ministry with baptism. But what's also mentioned is blood in our text. Look at verse 6 again. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So water is important. It's an important theme throughout the Bible, but also blood. Blood is a very important theme throughout the Bible. And again, we, we first, we don't read the word blood in Genesis 3 uh, after Adam and Eve's sin, but we do read something interesting that as they're leaving the garden, as they are expelled out of Eden because of their sin, what does God do for them? He covers them with animal skins. And in reality, that's the very first sacrifice ever made for sins. This animal skin covering. The animals had to be killed as a way for sin to be punished. And so blood was shed because of their sin. Genesis 3.21 Other major events that involved blood in in Genesis and Exodus. Exodus 12 and the Passover. What were the Israelites required to do for the angel of death to, to pass over them? They were required to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of it on the doorposts. And when the angel saw the blood, it wouldn't kill the people inside. It wouldn't kill the firstborn inside. And they would be passed over and forgiven. I read from Leviticus 16 earlier because that's the Day of Atonement. And do you notice how many mentions of blood in Leviticus 16 there is? Blood is what God accepted at the time, as it pointed to Christ for the forgiveness of sin, it was the sin offering had to be killed, then the sins of the people had to be mentioned and set upon the scapegoat as it was sent out. The sacrifices are just abundant in the Old Testament ceremonies. If you were a, if you were a Jew in the Old Testament, blood would have been a very common part of your life. You would have seen it, you would have, you would have smelled it, you would have seen the burning at the temple, or in the tabernacle where the smoke was rising all the time. Sacrifices were continually being made. And in Hebrews 9, verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified in blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that is, that is what the arrangement was in the Old Testament, that there had to be sacrifice for sin. 
that there had to be punishment. There had to be a punishment and sacrifice for sin. You know, our former pastor, George, was, off, was fond of saying something really important about our sin and what Christ accomplished on the Christ. He'd say something like this. Every sin that you've ever committed will have to be punished. Either by you in hell or by Christ on the cross. Your sin must be punished. Every sin in the history of the world will be fully punished. Either by, on the unbeliever or by Christ on the cross. Either you or Jesus will be punished. In Jesus, he's already been punished for you. It's already been done. And there's nothing left to be punished for sin. So which one will it be for you? Which one is it for you? Do you know? Are you not sure? If you're not sure, please come talk to me. Come talk to the elders and we will uh, work, you, work with you through that and talk about why sin has to be punished. Again, in Hebrews chapter 9, it shows how Jesus is better than the blood of, of goats and bulls. The goats and bulls, that was just a temporary measure. It says in verse 12 through 14 of Hebrews 9 that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of devoured persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so we're nearing the second great, good, the great part of the gospel. The first is that all our sins are washed away, the water. And the second is that the blood is a substitute for us. That we're given something in return. Our sin is placed upon Christ and his righteousness is placed upon us. And we're given righteous clothes. You remember from Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest has his sins forgiven, but he's also robed, he's given a new robe of righteousness. The Lord rebuking Satan says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It's, is this Joshua not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That is the second part of the gospel. If, if you've only ever heard that your sins are forgiven in, in Christ, that's only half the good news. The second part is that, you've, that you're clothed with righteousness, that Jesus' obedience is for you. All, of, all that he did perfectly in his life is attributed and given to you by faith. If it was just true that our sins were forgiven and washed away, we would still be uneasy, right? Because we could still sin. But our identity has changed. We have new clothes and we are righteous. In Christ, His obedience is given to you. And that is true of us as well. So that's the work of Jesus. That's the work of Christ that we have to receive. The second thing we have to receive is the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
the witness of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. Second half of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. So he throws in the Spirit here as well, as a, a testifier, a witness of this work of Christ. If you've ever followed a uh, trial on TV or a, a famous trial, if you've um, watched it, or, or a movie or a show, or if, you're a friend, if you like uh, John Grisham books, there's always the, the, the star witness, right? The star witness is the one that is going to seal the deal, and it's the testimony that, that everything hangs on, like the star witness. Every, every side wants a star witness that will be used for their benefit. Star witness is also attacked often, and the credibility of that star witness is, is tried to put into question. Well, the star witness in this and these verses is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the witness, is the testifier of what is true for us to believe. That all of Jesus' words, all of his works, are confirmed by the Holy Spirit. I, t- I talked weeks ago in a sermon about the main job of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Christ. It's to shine a light on Jesus. And we see that at his baptism that I mentioned earlier. So Matthew chapter 3, again, we, we see Jesus was baptized. And it says, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here you have the Trinity all at once. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descending upon Christ, confirming and testifying that He is the Son of God. The Spirit testifies at His baptism, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but also at His death, at the end of His ministry, when He is raised from the dead. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So what Paul is saying is the Spirit dwells in you, and it's the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, right? that took Him up and, and gave Him life. Again, a confirmation of His work and His words. And so this is the testimony that everything hangs on that we are to listen to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 9 and 10 in our passage. That if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. That whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. And whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar. Because He has not believed in the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. So what he's saying in verse 9 is, if you believe uh, eyewitness testimony from men, right, in, in human relationships, well, how much more should we believe the testimony of God that he's confirmed through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is who he said he is, that he did the works that, that are finished and final for our salvation. It's the Spirit that does this work and reveals Christ. And we're to receive his witness. And the last thing we're to receive is the wonder of eternal life. Look at verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony 
that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. And whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You see where this is all headed is life. That this is what it was meant to provide us. Not death, not difficulty, not burdensome laws and, um, and angst and anxiety and unsure whether or not we're saved or not or whether or not we're going to have true joy if we believe in God. No, He's given us eternal life. And this isn't just eternal life in length or duration, but in quality, in newness, and in satisfaction. So what are some things we learn about this eternal life or we know from Scripture? And before I jump into that, going back to that, moral, that moralistic therapeutic deism, remember what they said is that good people go to heaven when they die. That's all it is. That's all it really is about is that we get to go to heaven when we die if we're good people. And how that cuts against the grain of what the gospel is all about. And it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. It's life in Jesus. Well, the first thing we learn is that it's found exclusively in Jesus. Look again at verse at 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It all turns on whether or not you have Christ. That's whether or not you'll have eternal life. There's no secret doors into the commonwealth of the eternally happy. There is only one entry point and one passcode, and his name is Jesus. Secondly, the second thing about eternal life is that it's received by believing in Jesus. That one may only enter into eternal life by faith, that is, believing in Christ, trusting in his work, and treasuring his supreme worth. In the two verses leading up to John 3.16, everybody knows John 3.16, but in 14 and 15, it says this, that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You remember that scene from, from Exodus? And so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So in that scene in, the, in Exodus, all the serpents were attacking the people and killing people. But if you looked up to the serpent, you'd be saved. So you have to know that only Jesus can save you, but you have to actually believe in him. You actually have to look up to him in faith personally to be saved. And then that is how you enter eternal life. And then thirdly, about eternal life, it's the only satisfying option for the hungry and thirsty soul. Recall the, the meeting of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well and remember her history. Remember her past, which Jesus knew fully. Remember that she was hurting and that she was hungry for something deeper. That she'd have multiple husbands. She did not have a good reputation. She was looking for something. She was looking to be satisfied in something. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said, if you drink of this water, you'll never be thirsty again. She was trying to fill her soul with something that would never complete her. And she was reeling from her sin-stained past. Brothers and sisters, no one comes to Jesus if they're already satisfied and full. I mean, you'll try to share the gospel with someone, and it's so difficult because they're so satisfied with their life. Right? 
That's where it takes a lot of prayer because you want that person to become dissatisfied with their life. They will not come to Christ if they aren't hungry, if they aren't searching, if they don't feel the brokenness in their own life. But you know, sharing the gospel, it's, it's a real treat to share with someone who knows they're hungry and that they are dissatisfied with life and they're hurting and they need a savior and they need a solution. Think back to your own past. Is that how you came to Christ? You were hurting. You were hungry. And you needed Jesus. You needed a Savior. And so are you hungry for Jesus this morning? As believers, we have to stay hungry. We have to stay looking for that living water and drinking of it daily. So Jesus spoke to this woman of his ability to satisfy her quenching thirst of her soul. And so how does he do it? What does he give her? He gives eternal life. He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Another, re- another fact about eternal life, that it's a gift of God's grace. You can't earn it. You can't do enough to get there. You've got to receive it as a gift. We don't earn it. We can't merit it. The experience of this life is all of grace. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. You just have to receive it. And lastly, I'll conclude with this. Eternal life is something that we can know that we have right now. Look at verse 13. I wasn't covering it this morning. I'm going to look at it it again next week. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In a very real way, eternal life begins now for you, for us. John's goal was to provide clarity and confidence for us in Christ, that he wanted us to know that eternal life was to be enjoyed and experienced right now. In other words, all, for all who presently believe in Christ, there is eternal life to be presently enjoyed. That we really straddle eternal life and glory in this life and in the next. And so eternal life is not simply how long, but it's also the quality, how good. It's the best life you can ever imagine. The happiness, the satisfaction, the freedom, the comfort, the confidence, the humility that come to the believer are the beams that radiate from the center of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, let's enjoy them right now as you look to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that even in the midst of a life that is, has trials and that the sin that clings so closely has to be put off, we can still experience eternal life now. And that it will never end, and it will only get better and better and better as we trust in him. So, Father, let us put aside all the desires of this world to not be lured away from you, but to draw near to find comfort in your word and in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.